As you're being seated, find Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, we'll also look in, in, verse, in chapter 1 a little bit as well, as we have a sermon now entitled, God and Man. So, so far in Genesis, I thought this week, at this pace, it's going to take a long time to finish it, but uh, Lord willing, when we get to more of the narrative pieces, we'll probably cover more ground, but I just feel like these first few chapters, there is so much there to lay foundational truths for life, and so... I want to make sure we kind of cover this as much as we, as we can. Um, and I feel like the more I study it, I have more questions than answers. But we're going to do our best to dive into it. But what do we know so far from what we've talked about? You'll see that here in just a moment. What do we know so far by way of introduction? We know that the God of the Bible is the one and only true God. We believe that, right? If you want to know God, you need to know this God, the God that the Bible talks about. He is the one and only true God. We believe this God existed from all of eternity as the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit has always existed, right? Genesis 1-1 doesn't tell us God began, does it? It assumes he already was. He is eternal God. Is that something we can fully comprehend? Probably not, right? We can't. We can't comprehend that he's eternal, that he is infinite, that he is omnipotent, that he is existed in, as three in one. That's, these are things that are incomprehensible for us, but we believe they're true according to Scripture. Number three, God created the heavens and the earth. And I put a number up here. This number is debatable, and I've heard anything from 6,000 to 10,000, but we believe that uh, conservatively God created the heavens and the earth uh, maybe 6,000 years ago or so. Number four, we believe God created these things in six days, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago and that God rested on the seventh day. That's a, a real snapshot of what we've learned so far in chapter 1. All right, so now we're going to look at chapter 2 and talk a little bit more about God creating man. And what's interesting, and I think many of you know this, chapter 1, verse 26, mentions that God created man in his image. But then chapter 2 gives us this more detailed description of the creation of man. And it reminds me of, um, I was thinking about this story. You remember back in 2009, I had to Google the date on it, but there was this story called the Balloon Boy. I remember that? I think it was Colorado or Utah, somewhere out west. This couple thought it would be a cool idea to build this, some kind of balloon machine, send it up in the sky, and then tell the authorities that their child was in the, in the balloon. You remember that? Um, Come to find out, it was a hoax, right? They found the boy. His name was Falcon. I find that kind of ironic. His name was Falcon. But they found the boy hiding in the attic. It was just a big publicity stunt, a big hoax by these folks. But here's why I mentioned that. If Falcon would have been in that balloon, been up in the air, he could have looked down and saw his whole neighborhood, right? He could have saw everything at once. Like many of you have been in an airplane. You look out the window, what do you see? You see a lot of stuff at once. And so what I want the reason I say that is Genesis 2 is the up-close view of God creating man, whereas Genesis 1.26 is that airplane view of it. Does that make sense? Genesis 1 is that overall view of here's creation. Genesis 2 is here are the specifics, the up-close view. So let's read chapter 2. We're actually going to begin in verse 4 and read through verse 15. So Genesis 2.4, if you're there, say word. <clears throat> 
These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth, and watered the whole face of the ground. Verse 7 is a key verse. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. There he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also is in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pasan, that is, it which compasseth the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. There is Delium and the onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gehan, and the, the same is it that compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hadakal. That, that is it which goeth toward the east of Assyria, and the fourth river is Euphrates. Verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. From this text and back over in chapter 1, verse 26 through 31, I'm going to give us six key words to describe God and man. Six key words. The first one you see there on the screen is the word image. Image. So in Genesis 1, 26, it says, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our Likeness. I believe those two words, by the way, are synonymous, image and likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. So, what does it mean to say Man is created in the image of God. Does this mean that man is God? No, right? Does this mean that man will one day be God? No. We don't believe as the Mormons do, for example, right? That we can, they can achieve some type of godhood. We don't believe that. Does this mean that, men, that man can share fully in God's attributes? In other words, can we be eternal or infinite, or omnipotent, or omniscient, or omnipresent, or fully sovereign, or holy, or righteous, or just in a way that God is. No, right? It doesn't mean all those things. Let it be known that God is God, and we are not, right? That's one thing we've surely learned in these first two chapters. So what does it mean that God was made, that God made man in his image? Simply put, it means that God created Adam to resemble God, or to reflect in some way the character of God. 
Now, we know Adam didn't live up to that very long, did he? Uh, Likely not very long. But he was made in God's likeness to reflect the character of God. The best way I know to illustrate this is, and some of you can relate, some of you have children who from the time they were small, someone told you they are your spitting image, right? All these new babies we have, I'm sure people are saying, looks just like the mom or the dad, or I see both of y'all in there, right? The spinning image, like they just spat you out, right? And so in a sense, we can say, Adam, created by God, and God said, we make, I'm making him in my image. What a, what a special moment in that God had created all these amazing things. Think about it. All that God had created, the universe, sun, moon, stars, planets, the earth, all that's in the earth, beautiful plants and all these animals and things he had created, and yet God said, I'm going to make this one in my image. That's a special moment that God would do that. That God would say, I'm going to make something in my likeness. And that thing is, is called man, Adam. How does, how does man resemble God? Well, a couple of ways. First, we know that man is material, which is our body, and immaterial, which is more of the spirit and the soul of man. Look at verse 7 of chapter 2. The Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground. So we know earlier in creation it said God said that there be light. God spoke the word of his power to create things. Now when it comes to man, he takes a substance he had already formed, dust of the ground, and he uses that material subject to to give us a material body. But then he breathes into man the breath of life, and verse 7 says man became a living soul. So does this, does verse 7, separate us from the rest of creation? That God made us with an eternal soul. Yes, I believe it does. He he not only gives us the body, but he gives us this, this part of us that can live for all eternity going forward. Right? Such a deep topic, by the way. We're not going to dive further into that this morning. But to think that, to remember, this body is not us, right? It's, it's more than, we're more than just this body. Some people out there, especially those who do not believe in God, right, would say, this is it. Take care of your body. When it's done, it's done. We know that when this body fails to work anymore and this body dies, we know we will live on, right? And this is not in my notes, but how amazing is it to know that one day God's going to take this body that he gave us and raise it and restore it and It's going to be a glorified body forever. It's going to be amazing. Another thing about this that I see as far as being made in God's image is that we are mental, moral, social, spiritual beings. In other words, we have the capacity, unlike other parts of creation, to have a relationship with our creator. So God made us in a way that we can relate to him. As a matter of fact, in Genesis 2, or in the early parts of Genesis, we're going to see um, God relating very closely with Adam. And even after Adam sinned, we'll see in chapter 3, did God just ignore him altogether? No, he came walking in the garden, didn't he? After the sin, he came walking and 
So God, even though we fall short of God's standards, we fall short of his glory, we sin, we have turned our back on him, yet God still, through Christ, allows us to have a relationship with him. What a blessing to know we can have a relationship with our creator. Because in all reality, it would have been right and fair if God would have just rejected us, condemned us, ignored us, or refused us. Yet God says, no, I want to know my people because he is gracious and kind. You may not have much, but if you have a relationship with your God, you have all you need. Right? If we lose everything we have, and yet we have our relationship with our creator, that's the thing we need. Why do you think so many people in this world are out there just looking for answers all throughout the world in every single way? And yet, if they knew Christ, right, if they knew God, they would find the fulfillment they're out there searching for. We are blessed to know that through Christ. Another thing about being made in God's image is that as humanity, we believe that life has worth, that God created us with a certain amount of worth. And what I mean by that is we believe in protecting the sanctity of life. From conception to, to however old we might live to be, we believe that life is something valuable. Life is valuable. It should not be something treated haphazardly because God made us in his image. We also believe, based on this, the fact that we're made in God's image, that by God's grace, he can save any creature he desires to save. Any person he desires to save, he can save. So there's, a wor- there's worth there in that God can sovereignly save and bring to him whoever he will. Which, by the way, is why we as a church believe we should preach the gospel to everyone. Right? All tribes, nations, and tongues, everyone we can, we're to promote the gospel to them that they may come to know Christ. It's really a privilege to say we were made in God's image, but we'll get to it here in a week or two, but in chapter 3, we see that that image has been marred, distorted. We'll get there in a couple weeks. Word number two is dominion. You'll see that in chapter 1, verse 26, the word, and you'll see it also in verse 28. Let them have dominion. And he mentions here the, the animals, the things in the earth. Let them have dominion. What does dominion mean? Not a word we probably use very often, but it means to rule over something with power, to rule or reign. I wrote this in my notes. I added this this morning. Today is February 11th, 2024, and God still has complete dominion over every single thing in the universe. Agree? From the depths of the unsearched oceans to the unseen universe above, from the intricacies of the human body to the complexities of the human mind and will, God has sovereign rule and sway over all things. God has dominion. God has rule. But we see in Genesis 1, God has delegated some authority to mankind. We see it in Psalm 8, verse 6, where David said, You made rulers, you made mankind rulers over the works of your hand. The psalmist David said, God, you've you've put us in charge, if you will, to, to do some things with this earth. We're to, it's said to subdue it, to have dominion over it. Do you think this means that, by the way, do you think this means that God stopped being in control? 
No. He's still in control. He did not give up his authority, but he gave us responsibility and dominion over this earth he put us in. We're to be the stewards of what God has given us, and this is kind of an application here. But whether it's this earth or you know, the, the animals we use to eat, the plants we use to eat, whether it's the resources God gives us, whatever we have, right, we are called to be good stewards of all that God gives us. Our church, right, to be good stewards of this building and the money we have to buy things like a sign and send money to missions and do things like that, we're called to be good stewards of all that God has given us. That's, a, in a sense, a part of our dominion, our rule over our, the things in our lives. Word number three. Now, this word is not going to be here in the scripture, but you'll see where I'm going with it. The word is gender. Verse 26. I'm sorry, verse 27 of chapter 1. God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female and other created he them. I added some words, didn't I? What's it clearly say? Male and female created he them. In chapter 2, we're going to see next week, more clearly here that he made Adam, right? Caused Adam to fall asleep. Then he made Eve from Adam. We'll dive into that more next week, talk about those kind of things. But I, I want us just to see this clear, to us, I think it's clear, right? That God made two genders, male and female. Isn't it wild that in our life, in our culture, this is now beginning to be skewed. I think for many of us, this is kind of an insane thing to even think about, but it's true. And it's not really a new thing. It's just new in the sense of how it's being accepted and even in some way celebrated in our culture. Um, it is thoroughly biblical to say this. God made male and female. And however you are born, you're one of those two things. It's thoroughly biblical to say that. I had a situation with this years ago when I was a younger pastor. Um, I received a call from a deacon of my church, and he said, I, I, we need you to go to the hospital and visit this, um, this lady. And told me the lady's name, and I thought to myself, that, is, that doesn't even sound like a real name, but... Of course, I'll go visit this person. You know, I, I don't ever mind doing that. I'll, I'll do that. And he said, um, her, her parents are members of our church. I said, what's their names? And he said their names. And I said, oh, I've never met them. They had stopped coming to the church years ago. And, and so I go to drive to the hospital, and I walk into this room, and um, find a person laying there in very bad shape, uh, literally on, on their deathbed. And it was a young boy who had grew up in that church that I was pastoring and had even, by the way, walked the aisle at about age 13 or 14, somewhere in his early teens, walked the aisle of the church, prayed a prayer, signed the card, was baptized and joined the church. But by the time he reached 19 or 20, uh, this young man ran away from home, went to a big city in the north, changed his gender, and started dabbling in other lifestyles, alternative lifestyles. And now 
and at an older age, came back home basically to die. And he, he was laying there um, dying of multiple diseases. I was told these about this by his mother. And this mother was just distraught over, I think, probably the entire life of this. And so you got to remember, a young pastor, I've never, been in, I've never been in that situation before, right? And what do you do? The mother says, I want you to share the gospel with, and he, the mother said, with my daughter. And the, the man was unresponsive. It, was, it felt weird, right? But I stood at this bed of this unresponsive person who had the body of a female, but the face of a man and I shared the gospel and I'm just praying God <laughs> please help me right now I don't know what I'm doing I finished sharing the gospel I prayed and and then I left it was a very again I still can remember it very vividly all that happening within 24 hours uh, he had passed away and that when I talked to that mother the next time, she just, she didn't want to say a lot about it. But you could tell, again, a lifetime of whatever you want to call it, disappointment, struggle, prayers, a lifetime had just taken a toll on her. Um, here's why I, I tell you that story, because it happened to me, it's real, but we can say this, this is mental health issues, we can say it's medication, we can say it's just being worldly. But ultimately, this is an issue of sin. Well, that's how I see it in Scripture. As a matter of fact, any lifestyle that the Bible forbids that we partake in is an issue of sin. And I'm reminded of Romans 1 that says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, prideful, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I cannot separate the issue of gender and other issues related to this that we see in our culture. I cannot separate that from the depravity of man. From Genesis 3, throughout all of history to today, that sin of Adam, the fall of man, leads us to the wild things we see even in our culture today. So, if you, if you know anybody that's struggling with this, I don't know if you do or not, but with who did God design me to be and how can I be that person, um, again, Ephesians says we are His workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus to be His workmanship. And God is not going to form us into a creature that is obedient to what his word tells us to do. Right? So on this issue, we make sure, and the church 
true biblical churches will make sure, right, that we proclaim what Genesis 1 says. And if we have the opportunity, we maybe do what I did years ago, even though I was, didn't know what I was doing. We share the gospel and we pray for someone, if you have that, if you have that situation. Let me give you our fourth word. The fourth word is replenish. Or as it says uh, here in verse 28, be fruitful and multiply. So God creates Adam and Eve, man and woman, and gives them this assignment. Fill the earth and subdue it. This task is to literally populate the earth. Our church is doing a good job at this. <laughs> right? We may, have some, we may be struggling in some other areas, but we are accomplishing this purpose, I hope. Um, when God told Adam and Eve this, and this goes back to gender, right? Some of these things. This replenishing of the earth, be fruitful and multiply, could only happen if those two work together, correct? They had to work together. Thanks, babe. And God created them that way, right? I feel like I'm in biology class. But God created them that way. He created us that way that we could accomplish this task. Again, my note here says, smiley face, our church is killing it in this department. So that's what my note says. And I'm thankful for that. I want to add here, and I think this is important to say on this, this command to replenish the earth, to be fruitful and multiply, which specifically happens with Adam and Eve, and then after the flood with Noah, right, and his family, this task is given generally. And what I mean by that is we know that some people God may call to remain single and not partake in this. We know that some people, for different reasons, may not have children. And that's okay if that's what God leads in their life, right? But as a general rule, God wants people to make more people, right? That's what we do. We fill the earth. And I, I want to add this as well. God is, as Romans says, predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that we in the church don't just seek to have more babies, although I love the babies. We're singing this morning, and Mary Ray's just smiling at us up here, you know. I love seeing these babies and hearing them. I want them all to be crying. I love it. Um, I want them to be here and, and be running around. Our goal, though, is not just to replenish the earth with more people. Our goal is to replenish the earth with more disciples, right? So we want to see every one of these children, and I know it's going to happen because I, I know the parents and the grandparents involved. We want these children to know Christ and know Christ more and more and become young men and young ladies who serve Christ all of their lives. Literally, and there's no telling what this church could be like in 15 years, 20 years, 25 years. The legacy that many of you have started here will continue on through some of these children, very possibly. So we don't want to just replenish the earth. We want to replenish it with those people who know and worship God and see the seriousness of his glory, the greatness of who he is. So may God help us to continue to replenish the earth, not just with people, but with disciples who will shine like stars for the glory of God. The fifth word, and I'll be quick on the fifth one, the word is work. Um, we have been created to find fulfillment in doing things. If you look at chapter 2, verse 15, 
It says, God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. God made this beautiful garden, maybe somewhere in the Middle East, you know, people want to try to find it. Surely if it was possible to be found, the flood might have affected any possibilities of that. But God didn't put him there just to hang out and chill, right? God put him there to work that garden, to keep it. And God, in that way, instilled this idea of work. And we find our purpose, even, in doing something God's called us to do. Now, I know most of us are like, ugh, I really don't want to get up and go on a Monday morning to work, right? But we also know that that, that is good for us. It's good for us to have something to do, for our minds to do. Even those who retire, right, find something to do, like drive three hours away and pick up a church sign, you know, or, you know, whatever. If you're Ben, he's working constantly because Jane puts him to work. But whatever we do, right, we... we uh, we need to continue working. I've heard so many stories of people who retire and then decide they're not going to do anything and then they get sick and pass away because they're not staying active, not staying busy, just doing something. So we need, we're made to need this purpose, something to do. And so God has given us this, based on Genesis 2.15, this idea to, to do something. And so I want to illustrate this this way or apply it this way. Some of us might need this morning to say, I've been bitter about my job lately. Let me stop being bitter and let me do the best I can where God's put me. Easier said than done, right? Let me, my boss is annoying, but let me do the best I can in this situation to deal with it. My boss is great, by the way. I'm not, <laughs> but you might be thinking that. I don't want to do this work. Well, here's the thing. Do the best you can where God's placed you, or maybe God will call you to a new career or a new job that he already has lined up for you, that you might find fulfillment in serving him in that new job. I think this is a thirdly biblical command as well, that God wants his people to do work, to provide for themselves, to provide for their families, and to just fulfill their God-given call of serving him through some kind of work. My final word, it's really just a concept, but I think you'll see it, is the word covenant. Covenant, parentheses, of works. So back in Genesis 2, as we look at our final thing here, God takes the man, puts him in the garden, and God gives him one command, doesn't he? He says in verse 16, of every tree of the garden you can freely eat, like Go wild, enjoy the food, eat, 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 eat. Verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. In doing this, in God and Adam in verse 17, God created this covenant of works. He entered into this covenant with Adam. And the covenant said, if you will obey what I said, what I say, you will have life. Right? But what did God require? Perfect obedience to this law. Because he said, the day you eat of that tree, if, if you break this law, what will happen? You will die. So, perfect obedience leads to life. 
One act of disobedience leads to death. Perfect obedience to God's law in the covenant of works leads to life. One act of disobedience leads to death. We know over in chapter 3, disobedience happens, right? As Adam and his wife Eve partake of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And because of that sin, all of Adam's seed has now been affected by the sin nature, which includes you and I, right? That's why we can be, even our young children from early age might tell some lies or be disobedient. We have a sin nature in us, and that is evident we could all testify. How many of us would like it this morning if the sins of our lives were scrolled on the screens up here in a list? That would be a long list, wouldn't it? For every one of us. The best of us in here, whoever that might be, would have a long list of sins. Because we are children of our first father, Adam. And you say, well, I didn't really want to sign up for the covenant of works. I'm not, I'm not opting into that covenant. Well, you did anyway. We just did. That's how God did it. So how can, how can Adam or how can we have life if the requirement is perfect obedience? If the requirement for eternal life is perfect obedience to God's law, how could we ever have it? So God has given us another covenant that comes later in Scripture called the covenant of grace. So God decided, I will send my only son, and he will keep the law perfectly. He will be in perfect obedience to my covenant. Though he will be tempted, he will have perfect obedience. So though we are debtors because of sin, We have a hope of redemption. Jesus came as the second Adam, and yet he kept all the commands. We always say this, don't we? We, we preach this a lot here, that we're not saved by good works. Don't we say that a lot? You are not saved by good works. Actually, and stay with me here, actually you are. We are saved by good works not our good works, the good work of Christ, right? Semantics, but his good work. We talk a lot about the cross, and we should in the empty tomb, but don't forget the perfect life of Christ, living righteously in a way that we can never even imagine to live because we sin every single day. Christ, the Son of God, fully man, fully God, perfect obedience to the law. So that when he did go to that cross and made payment for our sin, his righteousness, his good work is credited to us. And as we've sang before, all my sin for his grace, what a glorious exchange. And in the covenant of grace, God saves us as we put our faith in Christ 
we receive his righteousness. It doesn't happen apart from faith. It doesn't happen apart from God's regenerating our, our hearts and giving us a new heart and giving us repentance and faith. And so there's so much to study here in these first few chapters, but I want to just close on this, po- this point. That if this applies to anybody in the room, I want you to think on these things. Stop trusting in your own goodness. Stop trusting in your own acts, your own works. Stop trusting in the faith of your parents and grandparents. Stop trusting in your possessions, your health, or your comfort. Stop trusting in your education or your job or, your, or the economy or what nation you're a part of. Stop trusting in all of those things and only trust in Christ. He is our salvation. We must have perfect obedience, and the only way we can have it is by faith in him. Listen to Romans 5, 18 through 21. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, Christ, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. My prayer is that all of us in this room know our Creator, God, through a relationship with Christ, by faith in Him, in His good work, in His life, in His death, in His resurrection. And that in knowing Him, we desire to love Him, to serve Him, and to worship Him from now and to all eternity. Let's pray.